0: I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee the Bible and Page. I'm Page, your Caffeine-Imbued host, and here's my caffeine. Almost gone. In the beginning, coffee, low, it was very good. In our last episode, Paul was talking about Abraham and about the importance of being a child of Abraham. Now, to the Judaistic minds, this meant being of Israel, because they considered Abraham to be the father of Israel. And they're not wrong. Abraham is the father of Israel, as Israel are his descendants. As a logical continuation of this thought, Judaistic believers therefore would thought that Gentiles, in order to be part of the family of Abraham, need to be circumcised and become Torah observant. This thought is predicated on the thought that the point of Abraham's covenant with God was Israel. It's as if they, these Judaizers, Uh, or false teachers that Paul is in conflict with, are saying the reason God promised Abraham what he promised was to produce Israel, out of which came the Messiah. The Messiah came through Israel. So in order for you to get to the Messiah and all that he promises, you have to enter through Israel. Israel is the door to the Messiah. So circumcision and the law are doorkeepers through which you enter into justification. That's a logical sounding argument. And as long as the focus of the debate could stay on Israel as the focal point of the promise to Abraham, then credence could be given to their argument, if you want to become part of God's family, you have to join Israel as part of their family. You have to become Torah observant, become circumcised, etc., etc., etc. But Paul's response is no. The point of Abraham was Messiah, not Israel. Israel was on the path to Messiah, yes, but God's point was Messiah. Paul has asked the Galatians this question, did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Paul's opponents were undoubtedly not ready to admit that Abraham was justified by faith in God's promise. In fact, how else could Abraham be justified? Abraham lived 400 years before the giving of the law. The law wasn't even in the picture yet and Abraham was still justified. This is part of the basis of Paul's argument. Paul's opponents might continue to argue, saying the giving of the law at a later time changed the basis for a person's entrance into salvation. In other words, the Mosaic covenant, based on the law, superseded and replaced any previous covenant given to Abraham. Now, they shifted the focus from Abraham's believing God's promise to the entrance of the law via Moses. Now, Paul anticipates this objection. And he draws on the knowledge of wills and covenants to present his next argument. Paul's goal is to show that no new development could change the promise made to Abraham. His enemy's objections would be, yes, God promised Abraham something and Abraham believed, but then God brought the law and that superseded this promise to Abraham. So in verse 3, I mean, sorry, in chapter three, verse 15, Paul begins his argument. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. In other words, once a covenant is in place, it's permanent. The Abrahamic covenant is therefore permanent and still in effect. In Genesis 15, the passage from which Paul quotes when he says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, where you read the story of this covenant that God made with Abraham. So the Lord said to him, Abraham, bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these to him, cut them into, and he ranged, he cut them in two, and he arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now, the birds of prey came down from the car, on the carcasses, but Abraham, Abraham drove them off. All right, so picture this. Sacrifices split in half with a path in between the halves. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, this is the part that's kind of weird, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cavanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphatites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gregorites, and Jebusites, all of the ite brothers. Now, let's look at this ritual here. If you and I were to engage in a covenant using this ritual over the sale, say, of a piece of property, We would take animals, kill them, put the carcasses on either side of this little path. And you and I would walk through this path, separating the carcasses, holding hands and signifying to each other, so be it done unto me if I break my terms of this contract. And the other party would say the same thing. So it be done unto me if I violate the terms of this contract. Basically, I'm saying I'm liable for the death penalty if I break this contract with you. And both parties are held to it. That's this covenant. But in this case, only God walks between these two severed halves of animals. This is God signifying, so be it done unto me, if either you or I violate this covenant. Whoa, God is saying, I'm willing to die if I break this covenant. I'm willing to die if you break this covenant. That just bends my mind in all sorts of different directions. God dying if I break this covenant. But isn't that what happened with Jesus on the cross? Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what John believed. That's what all the apostles believe. That's what I believe, God in the flesh. And he indeed died for me because I transgressed. This is a point where Paul's detractors, or maybe even you might say, wait a minute. That covenant sure makes it sound as if Israel's the point of it all because it's pointing directly to the birth of the nation Israel and all the land they would conquer. Okay. And you wouldn't be wrong. That story is in Genesis 15, nine through 21. The verse that Paul quotes when he says, Abraham believed God and the Lord credited him as righteousness though, occurs in verse six, prior to this covenant about the land that Israel would get. The point of Paul's argument is that Abraham's belief in God justified him even before God made this covenant with him about the land of Israel. That doesn't negate the covenant that with Abraham we just discussed. That covenant ritual secured not only the future land to Abraham's descendants, but it also gave a graphic description of the length that God would go to to save those who would be his people, namely that if this covenant is broken by you or I, I will die. Paul goes on to say, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture doesn't say, And to seeds meaning many people, but to you and your seed, in meaning one person who is Christ. Now, this is a clever argument on Paul's part. Though Paul is making a point of seed being singular, not seeds, plural, he's pointing to the Messiah, and that's his reason. The word seed, can, though it can still have plural and singular connotations, and it doesn't destroy Paul's argument. The truth is, these false teachers are only seeing half of the picture. There are two parts of this covenant. God's promise to give Abraham's descendants, plural, land which will become the nation of Israel. The second part of this promise of this covenant, God's promise to die on their behalf, Messiah. That's the seed, singular. I'm going to give your descendants, seed, plural, all this land, and I'm going to secure it with Messiah, seed, singular. The interpretation of this passage contains a plural application and a singular application. But truth be told, Paul's focusing on seed, singular, Messiah. Paul is telling these Jewish folks that Israel wasn't the point. The point of the promise to Abraham was Messiah. Messiah was the point. He goes on in verse 17, he says, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later through Moses does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. You see, this is what Judaistic believers were trying to say, that the law came later so it has precedence. Paul says, no. Paul says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. That happened before the law ever showed up. If the process of achieving righteousness has been established 430 years before the law. How could the giving of the law annul this promise? This whole believing in God to obtain righteousness thing, it works. The thought of setting that aside for a law that no one can keep is ridiculous. This is Paul's line of reasoning. Here's another thought. The promise to Abraham was also pointing to Messiah, correct? Yeah, we have already said that. We find that in the ritual where God promises to die if Abraham or his descendants break the covenant that we just read about in Genesis 15, that promise wasn't fulfilled when the law came. God's promise to die for the sins of his people wasn't finished. That covenant was still in process. The Abrahamic covenant was still in operation when the law was given by God through Moses over 400 years later. So the law can't come along in the middle and just set aside Abraham's covenant because that wasn't fulfilled yet. That wasn't done yet. If it could do that, if it could set aside Abraham's covenant, then there'd be no point for Christ's death because that's what's pictured in that covenant with Abraham. When God walked through those sacrifices by himself saying, I will die for you if you or I break this covenant. If the law replaced that, then Christ's death wasn't necessary because that covenant was done. No, that's ridiculous. The coming of the law did not supersede or take the place of Abraham's covenant. The promise given to Abraham, it can't. The law can't replace that. The law cannot add or subtract from God's first and only way of salvation. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul goes on to say, for if the the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. God promised Abraham. There were no laws involved. It was a flat out promise from God to Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, the promise and the law are antithetical. They can neither be mingled together or combined. There are two separate topics of conversation going on here. One's about justification through believing in God, and the other one is law. Whatever else might be said about the law, this much is certain. God saved Abraham through promise, not law. And the original path of justification is still operative, not law believing the promise verse 19 he goes on saying why then was the law given at all well it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come jesus the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator a mediator however implies more than one party but god is one it's a confusing little sentence but think of it this way mediators act between parties Moses was a mediator between God and the nation Israel. There was Israel, then Moses, then God. Moses, the middleman. He was a mediator. Israel had told Moses, We don't want to talk to God directly, he scares us. Let him talk to you, and you talk to us. Moses was the mediator. He acted between God and Israel, and the law thereby came indirectly to Israel. They didn't hear it from God personally. They heard it from Moses, who had heard it from God. This last phrase says, but God is one, suggests that in giving the promise to Abraham, God acted directly, unilaterally. There was no mediator. There was no mediator between God and Abraham. There was a mediator between God and Israel, Moses, in the giving of the law. This indirectly points to the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant over the Mosaic covenant. God went straight to Abraham face to face, but went to Abraham's descendants via a mediator. Now, Paul has proven, at least to me, and maybe to the Galatians, that the only way of salvation is by means of the promise received through faith, which Abraham is the father. The legalizers might object that the approach he's taken is assuming too much. If the way of salvation is by promise and the law brings a curse, I could see them making this argument. It would seem to follow that, Paul, you're saying that the law has no purpose at all in the scheme of salvation or that the law actually opposes a scheme of salvation. (laughs) That the law would be opposed to salvation would be an intolerable conclusion for those Jews whose lives have been dominated by the law. The law is central to their view of salvation, how it works. Paul answers these charges by denying both conclusions and by establishing God's true purpose. He says, it was given not to save people, but to reveal their sin. It was temporary and it was inferior to the promise because unlike the promise, it was given through a mediator, not face-to-face. So to the question then, what's the purpose of the law? Paul provides his first answer, the law was added because of transgressions. That is, the law was given to make the transgressions obvious, perhaps even to encourage them or provoke them to a new intensity. You see, in Paul's arguments in Romans 3 and 4, he says though sin was in the world before God gave the law, sin was not always not sin was not always known as such. It's law that reveals sin as, well, sin. In this act, law performs a function of showing one's need for a savior. Paul goes on saying in verse 21, if the law therefore is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Another possible conclusion by the legalizers would be that Paul's view on justification is that Paul is saying the law becomes evil because it opposes grace as a true means of salvation. Paul disagrees. I can hear Paul responding like this. True, the law increases transgressions and yes, it can even kill. Still, the law isn't bad, it's good. In fact, it's so good that if a person could do what the law requires, that person would find life. It is a path to justification, the problem being man is not up to the task. The law is not evil in and of itself just because we can't keep it. Let me say that again. The law is not evil in and of itself just because we can't keep it. Verse 22, Paul goes on saying, but the scriptures locked everything up under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe like Abraham. So if the law could be a way of justification, but man isn't up to the task, there's only one other path available to us and that's through the promise that we we see demonstrated in Abraham's life. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. Though it is impossible to find life through the law, the law fulfills its actual function by shutting all people up within the bounds of acknowledged sin. It condemns them. The result being that they turn from trying to please God through legalism and instead receive the promise of God through faith in Jesus Christ via the superior covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So you can see, Seen from this angle, we can see that even the law flows from God's grace because it prepares people to believe in the gospel of the Messiah. (sighs) I told you there was a lot in this chapter. Let's summarize real quick. 1. Paul is showing the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant. 2. The Mosaic law is a way to be justified. 3. If you can keep the law in its entirety, you're justified but man is not up to the task. Four, the only other option is to become a child of the promise, a child of Abraham, because Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. Five, the result of embracing that promise, i.e. believing the gospel, that is the basis for our justification. Six, and the last point, becoming a child of Abraham is no longer a purely Jewish thing child of Abraham. It's anyone who believes as Abraham believed, which blows the door open for Gentiles to come in and to become members of Abraham's family. A Good place to stop. Folks, I hope you have a wonderful, fabulous day. There'll be more tomorrow. This is Paige. I'm out of here. Bye-bye. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at page, that's P A I G E, at coffeebiblepage.com.